Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to the slightly ridiculous world of Tim and Tuesday, or as we're affectionately known sometimes, TNT, in case you didn't know that. That actually happens. Season three's been a blast mm-hmm. and remains a blast. Like the quality of the interviews we're getting to do and the people we're getting to meet, like new and old. I mean, it's just beautiful. Like it's a real journey of learning, isn't it? Yes. And I, every time we put a podcast out, I think, oh, that was my favorite interview. And then we just did an intro for another. I'm like, oh no, that one was my favorite interview. Like Mm -hmm. I like them all so much. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing. It has really been fun. So everything about the season has been fun. And I have missed just getting on this pod and chatting a little bit with you too. Right. So both are true. So we get to do that. Yeah. And like the purpose behind the pod, just, you know, just in case anybody cares. <laughs> uh, Jen McSween, who's our operations manager, she cares. Jen, this is for you. I'm bringing us back to purpose right now, right here. Great. In the name of Jen McSween, I bring us back to purpose. <laughs> Gandalf moment. <laughs> Thou shalt not pass. So the idea here was we could reflect on a couple. We've got some themes running through our pods, right? We've got mm-hmm. the, We've got some mentors right? People who've, you know, significantly influenced our work and influenced the field. We've got some kind of colleagues who are coming on the pod. And we've also done some pods with public health leaders. So we've had Robert Strang on, and we've had some of the senior leadership team from Minnesota Department of Health. And that's this season. And we're actually looking at a bit of an international perspective on public health for season five. So we're in conversations around that for the season five. My God, yeah, next year, season five. This is season four. I think I said season three at the beginning of this, but it's not. This is really truly season four and oh my gosh right and so what we wanted to do was just like do a little bit of reflection on these segments and and it gives us a chance to get together and natter a little bit and and dig a little bit deeper and get underneath what we're learning and so the purpose here was all right so what 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 is kind of coming out of these conversations with the public health leaders that's really kind of remained with us that stood mm-hmm. out uh, mm-hmm. kind of like either it's conceptually changed something it's touched our hearts it's given us an, an instinctive understanding which we didn't have before or a practical application we might not have thought of so that's where we're going and so with that set up I'm, I'm going to pass it over to you what what brilliant yeah <laughs> <laughs> what's no I won't even do that what's come what, what's been coming up for you do you think back on those two pods with yeah with Rob Strang rugby player leader of the Nova Scotia public health system response to COVID the leadership and MDH obviously working within the context of George Floyd's murder COVID and then all of the politics that are involved uh, at state level in the U.S. right now what's standing out several things but the one thing I want to say I'm so glad we've done something during this time of COVID about public health mm. because it I think our podcast could feel out of touch if we didn't acknowledge. I mean, of course, we, we acknowledge it in passing and our guests have mentioned it, but that's what's happening in the world right now. You know, if there's like, I mean, obviously climate change and, and racial uprising and all these things are happening, but every single place is dealing with COVID in a way, right? Maybe well or not good. But so I feel really pleased that we found these leaders who are willing to talk with us about COVID. And their experience of leading through it, because it's like the, it's like the the majors, one of the major systemic issues of our time. Yes. And so I feel just like super pleased for that. And I, you know, we talked with someone from Canada and folks in the U.S. and we'll have an international person. But I think one of the things that occurred to me is how much when we say healthcare, number one, public health, right? Like that, it's so big, it's so broad, it's so, you know, when they talk about the social determinants of health. 
and I think you asked in both podcasts, what are the boundaries of public health, yeah, right? Because yeah. it's so large. Right. And even within this, that bigness, what really struck me in the interviews is how very different country to country healthcare is conceived. So for example, I have had no interaction with the public health system since my children were born, right? When you like, get a nurse that comes out. Are you serious? Yeah, because it's not, it's our system is so different, right? And so public health in the US, right? Like I have private insurance. I have to, you have to have private insurance here to get mm. healthcare. Public mm. health is not in any way healthcare, right? Right. Like what, what I read that's just like huge amounts of Americans have no access to healthcare in a way that's just significantly different than it's happening in other countries. So even when we talk about public health and this big issue, the countries have such different experiences of access to healthcare around Mm. what's happening with COVID. And so that was just like, you know, sometimes you don't even know the water you're swimming in, but it like took us talking to Rob and John Paul on our team for me to kind of like say, oh, wait, I need to pause and like explain to you the public health response is such a small it's allowed to be such a small response here in the U.S. Mm. because the vast majority of healthcare is not that, mm. right? And so it was just—it was so amazing to think. It was so amazing to think about countries who actually had a public health system that was able yeah. to be integrated in the lives of the citizens in a way that ours isn't, and and now has come to prominence. And I'm hoping we'll be better positioned to really take care of our society in a way that is just different when healthcare isn't a right. Right. Well, that's where I was going to go. I just think of healthcare as a right. Yeah. It becomes a whole different ball game when it's not a right. Yeah. And so that just kind of came up to me as we were talking with the different folks. So that was like one of the things. How about you? Yeah, big time. Uh, I, I was just thinking that, like like how healthcare, education. I mean, there's things I just think of as basic rights that people should have. And healthcare is squarely in there. And I was just thinking, I was also thinking how ironic it was that I grew up with my dad singing like, Seeger songs and kind of like labor movement songs and Woody Guthrie and stuff like that. Yet the amount of privilege I come from. And so I'm like, how weird in then I, then I fell in love with Billy Bragg as a teenager, you know? So I've got these socialist principles, but not a socialist background at all. Mm. Uh, and, uh, anyway, I was just thinking about that briefly as we were getting into this. But the, the other thing that really struck me choose was like how suddenly these public health leaders were political. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, there's evidence-based, and then there's the political narrative, you know what I mean? And what that's like. And I think like, and I was just thinking about that in my own journey as a someone who's been, you know, trying to get change done or do good things in my life since I was a nipper, you, you know what I mean? I've always, you know, I've been up for it. And getting to that point suddenly when what you're doing is at a scale where politics is interested mm-hmm. and how that changes the game entirely. From starting the youth centre down in Yarmouth, where suddenly the town council and the and the kind of members of parliament suddenly turned up to a meeting because it looked like it was actually going to happen, though they'd been invited every single damn time, you know, through to initiatives we've been involved in where there's two and a half years of stakeholder engagement mm-hmm. that built momentum and solidity and budget and alignment for a major systems initiative, only to have it knocked off the table at the last minute by a piece of internal political decision-making. Nothing to do with the data, nothing to do with the stake, nothing to do with the need. And like how hard that lesson was to learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like how hard that lesson was to learn, how <coughs> painful it was to learn. Hey, Mia. Tim has his dog here today. She's amazing. 
and perfect. And we don't mind that she barked. You don't? I mean, she no. just, there was somebody at the door, but I don't know why somebody was at the door. Do you need to go check? She's just, come here. She's a, she's a, we call her the fierce defender of the realm. <laughs> from about 30 meters. <laughs> <laughs> and then other than that, she's kind of like, but she'll bark at someone very fiercely from behind me. That's right. There you go, girl. That's right. It's all right, sweetheart. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> anyway, so, but it's that political piece, right? You know, it's, it's a real game changer, as you know. And I, I mean, I know Rob Strang and, and, and I've worked with him for years and he's, he's not a perfect leader, but like, but I just feel like the sand has changed underneath the feet of these leaders. And, and, uh, and I think that's true when your work goes to a certain level of scale suddenly you're demanded to learn a whole new skill set, a whole new set of variables and boundaries become apparent to you. And I think that's what it's like when you're tackling change work and suddenly your work ups a level and you're like, holy crap, that happens here? Totally, totally. And this is why I agree. I was just thinking uh, many, many public health folks have been thrust into the political limelight, right? In a way that they haven't, whether it's at their local level or all the way up. Like folks are moving into leadership in ways they had just haven't had to. It is another skill level and it may not be what people want to do. I don't know what's happening in Canada, but I can tell you here, it's such a stressful job, right? To be in public health that people are just leaving, right? And so Yeah, well, that is happening, yeah. And so it's really hard um, to keep the folks who are doing good work in the work because it's become so political. So it becomes a place where some people shine, right? Like they, they up they, the level ups and they're able to do it. And it also has become a place where some people just feel like they have to retreat. And so I think it's, a, it'll be a really interesting. And of course our private healthcare system is so involved here too, right? So like hospitals and things like that are, are private and doctors are private. And so, you know, I, I think we'll be seeing reverberations through the medical community for years and years and years. And I'm so interested in, in what that will mean for leadership. The other thing that occurred to me is uh, those leaders we talked to had quite a bit of facility in talking about social determinants of health, health disparities, equity, race, different levels of, and maybe different levels of facility with it, but they all talked about it. Yeah. For me, that is a sea change. Yeah. And if we'd even done this three years ago. Big time. It's just such a difference. Like there was no, there was no hesitation in talking about it. There was no, it was like, oh yes, we must deal with these issues too, which feels like a truism that was not true five years ago. Or, I mean, it was true, but no one would have said it. And so I'm really in, I'm like, I feel excited. I felt excited after both of those interviews and maybe it's because it was just confronting and there was no turning away, but it doesn't matter. It's like, we can't turn away. These are the issues on the table. One second. Sorry, yeah, that was Jeff Frampton stopping in. <laughs> this reminds me of my mother's new dog, Rosie, who weighs 11 pounds and is incredibly fierce. And again, will not do anything but beside, right beside me or behind me. It just makes me laugh so hard. It's quite amazing how something so small can be so frightening, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. right. I mean, the first time I saw gremlins, I mean, I must have been young. Oh, those, those, some of those gremlins. Yeah. Oh, did you, do you know this about me? My very first floor music as a gymnast. So when you get to a certain level, you do an optional floor routine, right? So there's the compulsory routine, which is like everyone does the same thing, mm -hmm. but then there's an optional routine where you make up, you make up the routine mm -hmm. and you have to have music with it. Mm -hmm. 
And mine was the Gremlins theme. No. It totally was. I love it. It totally was. I know. I'll send, I want to send it to you because you, you'll probably remember it, but I loved it. And of course you don't, you do that then for hours. Do you have a video of the routine? I don't. You know, it's before. Video. Video. Yeah. 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 Everyone had a video in their hand. Exactly. Upping a level. Yeah. Kind of upping a level and an exposure that otherwise you might not have had. People either saying I'm out right? Or rising to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that was very real. And then that fluency with equity, that incredible fluency with equity, the ability suddenly for it to just to be part of the flow of the conversation. Part of what was interesting for me as well was that, I mean, that felt like something Rob had, I mean, Rob's been in public health long enough for me to have known him when we did 15 years ago, we did the transformation of public health across the province, right? So he's been in it for a while. What was also interesting for me was Kim, who was, you know, coming into lead MDH, has actually been brought in from a sector that would have been considered a group that was putting pressure on the more formal mm-hmm, system mm-hmm, and has mm-hmm. then been invited into leadership. And I thought that was a really interesting turn of events, you know, because it was almost like I could hear in the pod that transition she was making mm-hmm. from from us to them, from we to they, you, you, you know, from they to we. And, and I just think that's, uh, I thought that was really intriguing as well. Oh, I love that. I love that moving from they to we, is that what you just said? Yeah. And it just occurs to me that that feel, I just naming for myself and I want to hear the questions. It just occurs to me that I think that that would be a shift that would describe at least me, but I'm wondering if it would describe us when we think about equity work that it moved from kind of they aren't equitable and they aren't doing the right thing to like we are, you know, like we are in an inequitable society and we need to do something, right? Like it's just, it feels like a really important shift, at least in my conception of equity. I mean, obviously they're the extremists, right? That I'm like, I'm not a clan member, but I don't know that anymore. I think that like I got it figured out and they are doing the wrong thing. I just think like we have this issue that I'm a part of that we have to figure out is that movement from they to we in my equity work feels actually quite important. So. Yeah. And not only that, that all of those public health leaders, because of the expansiveness of the domain they have to deliver in, like it demanded that type of thinking. It demanded a collaborative approach Mm -hmm. when you're Mm -hmm. trying to do population health, right? Upstream population health. Right. 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 Then that, that demands a level of, collaborative practice that is kind of through the roof in it and so like you have to move into we so the interesting thing i think in the approach you've taken to equity and which you know we've begun developing and growing in together is that yeah it says we mm-hmm. but it also says there has to be something solid in the middle that makes we worthwhile because mm-hmm. i'm not going to work with someone i don't like i disagree with i have no experience of up until this point in my life i found frightening for whatever reason Unless there's something in the middle that demands we do that work together. Right. And maybe this is conjecture, but that's, it sounds to me like COVID has done that within some of these public health systems. It's put that stake in the ground in the middle that has forced collaboration across difference that otherwise would not have taken place or that the fragmentation would have taken longer to break down. It's almost like holes have been punched in the silos mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. between peoples, you know, between institutions. Between, and I just think that's, that's quite a remarkable outcome. Well, I hadn't thought about it like that. I think that that's so interesting. And I 
can imagine, like, as you were talking about kind of what people have been forced to like up their level of effectiveness, right? Like they, there's just like, there's so much more they actually have to get done in a day mm. to impact change. So they've up their level of effectiveness. They've up their level of skill around politics. They've upped their ability, willingness, knowledge that they have to collaborate. They've upped their turning toward issues of equity and service delivery, right? This is all of these things that they've up leveled in. And it just occurs to me like, but part of me wants to be like, why aren't we shouting these stories from the rooftops? And they did it in two years. Right? Holy shit, that's amazing. Right? And like, not only, wow, amazing stories, we're, we're already doing what we want to do. That's all I want to say. Like, it's, sometimes it's, you know, it's that illumination on the end of the two loops. Where are we already living the future we want to see? I think that they're just example after example, and also the audaciousness to think that they can do it. Right? Even if that audaciousness just looks like putting your head down and getting it done. So there's just actually something really important. I think, you know, because I had said earlier, like, I wonder what will happen with the medical field as people like years from now look back on what was probably quite a traumatizing time for them. And I also, so that's kind of a, maybe a trauma informed lens, but the other lens is around the incredible audacity in people living the future now. And it just seems like that's so important. And part of the story we're missing in the suffering of this illness or this pandemic. Not to say there have not been things that have been very problematic in how public health systems have responded to and COVID. (laughs) Right. I just don't want to like paint some rosy picture. Right. But there is that kind of principle in appreciative inquiry, isn't there? Where, you know, where where you put your attention grows. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's valuable to see that. It's valuable to see that kind of growth and to name it, be like, oh, wait a minute. What's that story that, that could be told, you know? I kind of want to take this in a funny odd direction and maybe because we're getting near the end, but I just, it, it keeps bringing me back to like, what have we learned? Mm. <laughs> you know, over the last two years, like we're talking about, and this may be a way to kind of like bring the pod to a conclusion that just, but like we're talking about the incredible learning curve these public health leaders have been on both kind of individually, collectively, pragmatically, kind of like conceptually, analy- I mean, you just gave the whole list, right? So it's just like remarkable. And, and I just like, what are some of the things we've learned? And someone asked me this the other day, we, they were talking mm-hmm. about this very large event they want us to do, which is part of a 10 year strategy around climate change big funders blah 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 and uh you know she said you know we want it to be face to face in the fall Hmm. you know these because there's a series of retreats that happen as part of it but it may go virtual and then she was just like what have you learned about taking stuff virtual (laughs) and like one of the first things that came out of my mind i mean there's lots of stuff we've learned like technology and and like we know i think we've said on the pod last last season like you can't take an in-room design and move it into an online space you have to design for online spaces you know but one of the things that struck me in when i started answering her was that like actually entertainment has had to become part of what we do Mm. and that like you know the way we introduce music into how we work with people how attentive we've become to the images we're using and the art that goes into the into what we're creating when people are arrived they're arriving into a space that feels well hosted that feels humorous they're not just turning up into a room grabbing a cup of coffee gently finding their seat like they arrive and then there's like and it's entertaining from from the moment you walk in there's something happening and it's like oh yeah that's actually had to become part of what we deliver like we're not just like hosting a good conversation now we're not like there's a level of like entertainment that hooks people into these online spaces. I am also somewhat drawn towards that because I come from a theater background and, you know, and I love that kind of stuff. 
What, what were some of, you know, as you think about some of the things we've had to learn? One of the things I think is around a habit of overwork or oh, a need yeah. for rest. And it certainly isn't original to us or, you know, like there's so many things happening in the world where people are talking about rest. And I think that COVID, you know, certainly for folks in public health didn't result in any kind of rest, but many of us, it took us a while even, right? But many of us got a backing off from work space to look at other things in our life, space to look at our own patterns. And I think what I finally, I finally feel like I've got the lesson that overwork isn't excellence. (laughs) Like, like I'm sure I fall back into it all the time, but there's something actually about the pattern of overwork as somehow proving worth of self or worth of work that feels like at least finally, finally, I was able to look at that pattern and be with it in a very different way. But I even think to start to interrupt the culture of our organization, Hmm. that is a pattern in our culture. Hmm. And so it is actually not enough that I interrupt it for myself. I now am leading an organization with you and others. And we have to figure out what the cultural pattern is that because the org can just like dominant systems reassert themselves. And so like, what is the way to structure in not only attitude, intention, behaviors, and practices, but actually structure in a lack of overwork feels like this next edge that we're on. That feels important. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And circumstances have forced that. And and like we're literally taking time at the moment to do bits of R and D and to do writing and, you know, putting in book proposals. And it's exciting. I look forward to Wednesdays now because I get Wednesday to do some of the writing and the research that in many ways is capturing a lot of the personal journey I've been on as a kind of change leader, for lack of a better word, for years, you know. I'm loving that. Something else that struck me when this lady asked me this question as well, was like, I feel like I've proved to myself that intimacy can be achieved through online Mm. communication. Uh If I think about, and you and I reflected on this in December when we had our strategy retreat, I don't feel any less close to you Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than I did the last time I saw you over two years ago. We've tracked each other. We've been in it. Mm -hmm. We've been friends. We have not shied away from hard conversations. We have not shied away from celebrating each other. I mean, would I like a Tuesday hug? I'll take any day of the week, bring it on, Mm -hmm. you know? But like, there's been something about the practice of intimacy that I feel like we've found in our relationship to each other that has also translated into how we now host these online spaces. I just know it's possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know it's possible. I talk to my mom and dad more than I've ever talked to them through this period of COVID with a regularity I've never talked to. Like, I know exactly what's going on. I mean, you know, and like my relationship to my parents was severed at 13 when I was dropped off at a boarding school, you know? And so like, it's like most bizarre of all, like it's taken a global pandemic for me to get into a day-to-day relationship with my parents again that I haven't had since I was 12 or something, you know? Like I literally know they, they went, where they went out for dinner and what they're doing and, you know, what they're planning next week. Because when, you, when you're in that kind of regularity, you just start to know the rhythm of people's lives. And so I just think that's been important for me because I think there's often a strong narrative or there was prior to COVID that intimacy couldn't be sustained through the online space. Right, yeah, for sure. And like I just don't buy that anymore. I don't buy that anymore. And I know that even in the Activating Change co- cohort that we just did, you know, we launched the Activating Change cohort, you could see intimacy taking place. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that gives you, 
it feels like it gives me permission to ask some of those questions that actually create the intimacy, to be courageous in the structure of the design and the depth of the conversation we expect from people who participate in our work because we just know it's possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. It's funny that you said, I'm like, all right, we just now take that as a possibility. Yeah. Just kind of take it for granted that, yeah, that will work or we can bring people together or that's, I'm trying to think of another lesson. It's a great one. You know, part of it feels like it comes from like my family life, right? So you mentioned your parents and I think like how much we need to be with people. Like, you know what I mean? Like as introverts, like I feel like the introverts, like first a cover are like, yes, this is amazing. And I still <laughs> don't have a whole lot of, but there is something, I watch it with my children, how much they actually need to be with people, right? That, that enforced quarantine was so, so, so hard on my children and on me that I, in a way I didn't realize until I was able to like be in public again or, you know, like, right. and so there's something that just occurs to me. Like, I'm just thinking about that, um, part of the attachment literature now is talking about the need to co-regulate. We've spent a lot of time regulating our internal states, right? Learning how to do that for ourselves. Don't be codependent, you know, like be no regulate yourself, right? You, but there are also attachment theory is talking about how as human beings, we are geared toward co-regulation. And so this need to be with other folks to regulate myself. And I remember once I said to you, it was a couple months ago, I said, you know, time on my own, but and you're like, you know, and you can actually be with people like that would, that's actually part of doing this work too. And so this idea, I think it, it's not only because of COVID, but I think maybe I'm a, aware of it, or maybe we're having more acceptance of it. I feel like so much of the psychology and psychological literature was all around independent. So you weren't codependent, Right. And I feel like now we're moving toward, yes, independence, but interdependence and co-regulation in a really important way um, that the planet is insisting upon, that this virus is pointing out in ways that we just couldn't see before. Um, and so there's something about interdependence and co-regulation. It's I don't have it super articulated, but it's right there. I never understood the purpose of small talk. I never got it. I was like, why the fuck are we standing around talking about nothing? I just never understood why small talk existed, you know? And like my wife, Katie, I love Katie, but she will talk the hind legs off a donkey about nothing. Oh! Forever, you know? And uh, and she's, I mean, she's not afraid to talk about things that matter either. Right, yeah, yeah. But like Katie can talk, and it's great sometimes when I don't feel like talking because I can just sit back and Katie will go, you know? Yes. And I know where she gets it because her mum's like that too. And uh, and God love her. God love her, she's brilliant. And so I was working with my therapist and, and I was telling him this story of like having really intense anxiety one day, which I've had ever since I was a young man. Probably around that time, I got sent away to school. Actually, weird. That must be connection. I know. Can you imagine? It's weird. Yeah. So, like abandonment, anxiety. Apparently, anyway. Oh my god, it's like a moment. So, I've always had anxiety, and I was talking to my therapist about this anxiety and how I'd noticed that I'd had really intense anxiety, and then I went out and I did a couple of coaching sessions with kids. Mm-hmm. You know, coaching soccer, and then by the end of that day, I didn't feel anxious anymore. And he was like, "Oh, he's he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, all the literature says being with people is actually." a form of regulation. Mm. He's like the small talk, the interaction between people about things that don't actually have a lot of meaning. They're just like interactions is one of the ways that human beings regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. Quite literally, like that's what the literature says. And I mean that seriously in terms of I never understood the purpose of small talk. Yeah, yeah. 
Totally. I mean that, like, you know, goodness me, like I fell into a field at 24 years old that was called the art of hosting conversations that matter. And it was meant to be a way of life. So if you're not talking about something that matters, you're actually betraying the DNA of what you've agreed to do. I mean, it was like every conversation had to matter. Mm-hmm. Katie, when she first met me, called me circle boy, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and love was born. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> circle boy. It's, it's funny because it's released me. Mm-hmm. To just like now, I understand the purpose of it. It's really smart. I just like chat to people, you know. And, and there was a, an extended period of my life where either I'd get bored or I'd feel like I had to take it into a really. I'd have to find some really wicked question to ask to take this somewhere. God, it must have been unbearable. Anyway, I don't believe that for a second. No, you know. So I just love that. Yeah. This like that actually humans regulate and they don't necessarily regulate through intensity. Right. Is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They actually regulate through relationship, mm-hmm. through chit chat, through being together, through playing soccer, through whatever it might be that actually that, that has a function that helps people feel good about who they are, mm-hmm. to feel comfortable in their own skin. Mm-hmm. And that, that's not a waste of time. There's no, there's, in some ways, there's nothing more precious than that. There's nothing greater community can offer. Yeah, this reminds me of who I am through no particular effort. And it occurs to me that this might be really connected with what you said earlier about being able to be have intimacy through online spaces. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I see every bit of your body movement and I'm just like so touched. Right? It can actually be like just seeing a friendly face across the screen and maybe having a conversation you wouldn't have had that day, mm, right? Yeah. But these things become just incredibly important and small. And maybe that's what I'm, another thing for me is like, I just feel like small. I mean, we've always said next step, right? Like that's all we can see. We can see the next step. Mm, and so let's just take mm. it. But I think I have probably more comfort and the like, okay, let's just take the next step, right? That's all we could do anyway. And maybe it's just more settled into my bones now. Hey, look, I've just thought of something. So <laughs> okay. Tuesday, when we have guests on the podcast, we often invite them to bring a poem or a quote. Ooh. And, uh, and I'm wondering if you, you have anything that you're just kind of carrying around in your back pocket at the moment. I'm, I'm thinking. Well, I can find one. Yeah, let's find it. Find it, find it, find it. And then I think we might want to say like who we might want to invite on the podcast too, you know, like mm. based on this year. I'll tell you what, what's got my attention is when Adam Kahane suggested Richard Olivier, Lawrence Olivier's son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That really got my attention and I really want to follow up on that one. And then the other one that's got my attention is a bloke called Richard Beard, who you know, he wrote this book called Sad Little Men, which is this feisty, fiery, angry analysis of class and boarding school and kind of segregated education in the UK, which of course is so much part of my story. And it is, I mean, I'd love to have him on. That'd be, that'd be brilliant. Those are the two of the people who are kicking around my world at the moment. Obviously I picked two white boys, which is brilliant. Well, right. So I won't. How about that? Great. That's just, you. I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that the folks that I feel interested in, uh, Bio or Bayo Akamalafe, oh. for sure. Like, I think we just have to see if we can get him on the pod. Yes. For sure. Totally. So that's like a number one. And then the other, like, is just like a dream. I would love to have Martha back on the podcast. I mean, she's just oh, like. Oh, mate, that would be amazing. Like, she's just giving me life. So I just like would love to 
I would love to do <laughs> maybe what I did with MedWeekly, which is just like read her back lines from her book and go like, hey, that's amazing. <laughs> I felt like that was our whole Meg interview. I was just like, let me read you a line from your book and tell you I loved it. <laughs> okay. And then she always had something to say though, didn't she? She did. Exactly. Exactly. I found a poem that my friend Marianne Hughes sent to me recently. Wonderful. It is called Lines for Winter by Mark Strand. Tell yourself as it gets cold and gray falls from the air that you will go on walking, hearing the same tune no matter where you find yourself inside the dome of dark or under the crackling white of the moon's gaze in a valley of snow. Tonight, as it gets cold, tell yourself what you know, which is nothing but the tune your bones play as you keep going. And you will be able for once to lie down under the small fire of winter stars. And if it happens that you cannot go on or turn back, and you find yourself where you will be at the end, tell yourself in that final flowing of cold through your limbs that you love what you are. I always feel like I want you to read the poem because you've got that theater voice. <laughs> but people can find it and we'll link it. Blow ye winds blow. <laughs> exactly. Vicking <laughs> Leah. <laughs> hey, look, you know, there's a when I was a kid I went into a vinyl record shop and I bought this album by a bloke called Dion Parker because I loved the cover of it. It was like these neon lights and and uh we can't play songs on the pod anymore because of all kinds of rights and stuff like that. But folks, if you're on your Spotify or you're on your Apple tunes, there's this wonderful musician called Dion Parker. And I've just been walking around outside in the snow with my dog. And he's got a lovely song called Footprints in the Snow. And, uh, you know, and of course, mm. it's a lovely song. Go have a listen to it. And there's, there's some other beautiful songs on the album as well to enjoy. But that one's been rolling through my brain today. So pop on there. Dion Parker, D-Y-O-N, and then Parker. Love it. Not Peter Parker, except he's not Spider-Man. He's kind of a contemporary of Jackson C. Frank, if anyone's it. Jackson C. Frank did that song, Blues Runs the Game, which you should, I mean, also an amazing song. I think actually Dion Parker references Jackson C. Frank on the album cover. He does for sure. See, Spot the Geek. Is that a Spot the Geek moment? I think that might have been. I mean, I also feel impressed. Both are true. Both can be true. But I I guess I got a little caught up when you said he's not Spider-Man because I think most people don't know who Spider-Man is. So That's true. Who could be Spider-Man. Who Thank you. Exactly. Thank you. Well, spider friends, thanks for joining us on the podcast. <laughs> it's been wonderful to have you with us. There is a Find the Outside podcast playlist. It's amazing. If you're ever looking for tunes, just stick it on. You know, it's wonderful to wash it up with. It's wonderful for sitting down and reading a book with by the roaring fire. It's wonderful for taking a walk or a run with. So other than that, we hope you're faring well. Stay in touch and uh, enjoy the rest of the season. Thanks so much. 